church. Um, it's good to be with you this morning. We are uh, coming to a bit of a, conclu- or we're, we're in the process of concluding our study, Road and Rubber. So um, we're in chapter eight of Esther this morning, and then next week is nine and 10, and that'll be, kind of be the end of our study. And, and we'll have a, uh, a guest coming from Sebring who, who will be with us in December. Then we'll start talking about Christmas stuff. Who 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 thought about like, oh great, Christmas is coming up. Like who thought like I'm ready. Like it hasn't been. It's been long enough of a year, and now it's time to do Christmas. Like, yeah, oh okay, you guys. <laughs> okay, you guys are ready. I I'm like well, I thought I thought it was September. Like didn't the kids just go back to school? So I'm 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 a little bit lost, but uh, I'm I'm excited to be found where we are, um, and so. You, most of you have been around, but what, what we're doing in our, in our series is we're trying to take a look at what does prayer look like in real life. Like if we're talking about being stuck in the middle of a road on a divided highway, and we know God got us this far, but we're still looking across all these moving cars, how is it that he's going to get us to the end of that? And what is it that I'm supposed to do when I'm stuck in the median? It was a question I posed to the kids, and I probably could have done a better job illustrating that for them. Um, but, but, but that is more what life feels like, where we trust God, and we, and we want to talk to God, and we get out, and we're following Him, we're taking steps to do that, and we get a certain amount of the way, and it seems like, wait a second, like, did He leave me? Am I out here alone? Um, and so in real life, we know that we should be praying but it often feels like maybe prayer isn't the kind of thing that's going to help me right now. What I need right now is to do something. And so our, our temptation when we get to real life is like, I need to stop spending time in prayer and, and spend more time like doing stuff. Because, because the world doesn't encourage us to, to pause and take time and trust in Jesus. Like the world tells us, like, you got to make the bills. Like the, the deadline hasn't changed. You still got to be done by the end of the month or the first of the month or whenever your bills are due. Like they're just coming and you got to get ready for them. So, so what does prayer look like when life don't stop? That was a mantra that I had for a long time. Um, people would ask me like, Hey, how are things going? And I don't like to respond. I'm busy. Because, I mean, we all say that, but it's not necessarily like something that is helpful in a conversation. I just say, life don't stop. Like, there are things that I got to get done, and, and life just don't stop. There are things that come up, and I'm like, oh, life don't stop. So if life don't stop, what does prayer look like? And so as we're, as we're exploring these ideas, we're, we're taking two things that seem opposite and trying to bring them together. One is the story of Esther. And the story of Esther is one that is unique in the Bible because it doesn't mention God at all, and it doesn't mention prayer. And if I was left alone without any kind of church or spiritual influence, like that's what my life would more look like. Like things are just happening, and I have to deal with them. And then we are pairing that with a book called Psalms. Dominic, will you please come sit down? Thank you, sir. We're pairing that with a book called Psalms, 
um, which is very, very heavenly focused. And it's all about like, how do I talk to God? And sometimes if we go to the book of Psalms, when I'm in the middle of all my craziness of life don't stop, we go, what does this heavenly stuff have to do with what I'm dealing with today? And so we're taking this, this book of Esther, which is like my real life, and this book of Psalms, which is like nothing like my real life, and trying to figure out like, where does God, like, where does the rubber meet the road here? Where do these two things intersect? Because I've got bills to pay, and I've got things to do. Right? Amen. All right. I, I, know, I know you know this. I'm just making sure that you're awake this morning. So that's what we're going to do. Can we pray together before we dive in? We're going to do a lot of summary this morning, and, and we've got an, an excellent psalm um, that I think will cue us up for a lot of other things. But let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are in control. You're, you're the cornerstone. You're the, the one that all of creation was built upon. You're the one who, the active agent in history who has been building the world and, and, and moving the events of the world to get them to the place where you're going to, to wrap everything up. And Lord, we're, we're just looking at you trying to figure out what it is that you want for us to do with our little section of this piece of history. You've placed us on the planet and we didn't get a say in that. But what we do with this time, you've asked us to cooperate with you in it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you would find uh, students today that are, that are willing to listen with open ears and hearts today that are willing to change, acknowledging that you, the creator of all things, know what is best. And your care for us is from a heart, a heart of tr the truest love that is possible. So Lord, thank you for being here with us today and guiding our conversation. I pray that your word would stand true in our hearts from this morning into the rest of this week. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So in, the, in, in Esther, as we've been summarizing, um, there have been a couple of things that have happened. Um, we, we met King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, depending on which translation you're reading. And, and he was a dude that, that was dirty, filthy, stinking rich. And he got his way. And when people forgot who he was, he didn't hesitate to remind them. And so he excused his queen in a drunken rage, as one does. And then after he got his butt kicked on the field of battle, he's like, maybe I need another queen. So we had a beauty contest. And that's where we meet Esther. And Esther becomes the queen. And Esther is a Jew, but she's raised in such a way that she doesn't really tell anybody that she's a Jew. But her cousin, Mordecai, who raised her, he tells everybody he's a Jew because he don't care. He got nothing to lose. And so he's out and he's doing his thing and he's in and out of the palace. And they make these weird proclamations that as these important officials come through, the people got to bow down to them. And, and Mordecai's like, well, I'd, I only worship the one true God, and so I can't bow down to another idol, whether it be a living flesh and blood person or whether it be a, a golden statue. I don't bow down to things that aren't the true God. And so that really gets under the guy who made the law's skin. And his name was Haman. And that's who we talked about all last week. And Haman is kind of a, a, just a scumbag. He's very self-centered. He's very just focused on himself. He's, he has the world. He's on top of the world. He's got all the money. He's got all the promotions. He's got kids that are all healthy and they're ready to take over the family business, which is politics, which is very lucrative. And 
he's got all these things, but that one little Jewish guy won't bow to him when he comes in the courtyard, and that drives him nuts. So he figures out, like, I'm not just going to get rid of Mordecai, I'm going to get rid of all the Jews. And so he's a lawmaker. He makes a law by bribery and filling the king's treasury. Like, that's kind of how you get things done in this city. And he gets a a law set with the king's signet that on this certain day, Anybody who wants to can go to a Jewish person's house, kill them, and take all their stuff. All in the city, all across the, the, the country, like anybody who wants to, if they've got a Jewish neighbor, can just go knock on the door, slice their neck, and take all their things. And so this comes to Mordecai's attention, as it would, when a law gets passed that you can die on this certain day of the year. And he's understandably upset. And he goes to Esther and says, hey, Esther, like, my life hasn't always worked out the way that I thought it was going to, and it seems like I've always been in the wrong place at the wrong time, but maybe you're in the right place at the right time because you're the queen now. And nobody knows that you're a Jew, but don't think that you're going to be able to hide in the palace and escape what's going on. Like, you should probably do something about this. And so we, we saw last week how uh, she was praying and pray, uh, she was fasting the text is very explicit that she fasts. It doesn't mention prayer, which is unique because you'd expect that prayer would go with fasting, but that's what they talk about. And so she's fasting and she holds these two banquets. And in the banquet, the king finally says, all right, Esther, what is it that you want? What is it that you're looking for from me? And she says, save my life. I'm a Jew. And you've passed this law that people can just come up and kill Jews and take all their stuff. And like, I'm married to you, so the people are probably gonna take some of your stuff too. But like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die here and all my people are going to die. And the king, in a drunken rage, executes Haman because he's the one who made the law, right? But we've talked about, there's been a little thread as we've been, been talking about this story. There's been a little thread I've tried to piece in there. I want, this should not be new information to you, but it's going to matter right now. It hasn't mattered, and now it matters. When the king signs a law in Persia with his signet ring, the law cannot be changed. And so we, we as, as, as people who are reading the story and who are engaged with the story, now we're, we're, we're glad because justice has been done. Haman has been hanged on the gallows that he raised for Mordecai. Like, that, that just feels right, right? Like, the, the wicked guy got what was coming to him. He was all serving himself, and then he got hanged up on the thing when he was trying to attack the innocent guy. Like, yeah, that's how the, we like the movies to end, except... He made a law that anybody who wanted to could walk up to a Jew's house on this certain day, kill them, and take all their stuff. And the law can't be changed. So, the next morning, <laughs> Esther comes in again to the, queen, to the king. Now, we know that that doesn't happen unless the king invites her. So, things have changed so much where the first time she would go into the king, she, she took three days to fast for it. Now she's so in it, she doesn't even wait. She's just like, she walks up and the king extends the scepter. Like she's there to do, like king, we have to come up with a solution. Can't you change this law? Can't you revoke this law? Can't you undo this law? And he's like, no, I can't. When, when the king of the Medes and Persians signs a law with his signet ring, it's like writing history. It's already been done. I cannot change it. And so it's noodle time. That's what we say on the job site. It's noodle time. When you get to a problem that you're not sure how to do, like you've got to think about it for a minute, it's noodle time, right? Use your noodle. 
Okay, now we got it. Okay, you got you to gotta use your noodle. You got to think about it for a minute, okay? It's noodle time. And so in the course of all of, all of this, Haman has been trying to move himself up in the ranks by attacking and, and, um, attacking and trying to destroy Mordecai. Well, Mordecai accidentally one time saved the king's life. And so when you attack the guy who tried to save the king's life and then you get killed, like, this is really interesting. Mordecai now becomes number two. Like, Mordecai gets all of Haman's promotions, which is really, really nice. Like, he's, he's not in sackcloth and ashes anymore. Now he's in the royal robe. Like, he's the one whom the king delights to honor, and he just gets the chariot. Like, he's got the keys to the chariot. He can go whenever he wants to. Like, so that's really, really, really nice. But they still got this problem because he's a Jew, and there's this law on the books that on this certain day, anybody can just walk up to a Jew, kill him, and take all their stuff. Well, Mordecai gets all the scribes together, all the lawmakers, and these are the people whom Haman would have, you know, worked together with to get the law written. And now Mordecai shows them, hey, we got to figure out a way to undo this. And so they, they think about it, and they work on it, and they draft another law. And they give the law to the king, and the king signs this new law with the signet ring. So it can't be changed. That, of course, on this given day, as I have written previously, anybody who wants to can just go up to a Jew and kill them and take all of their stuff. The second law allows the Jews to defend themselves. That if somebody comes up and tries to kill them, they can get together and defend themselves. And it's, you know, at the front end of this, it's going to be considered self-defense. So, yes, you are welcome to go and, and kill Jews, but understand that if you go to attack them, they have the right to kill you too because you have attacked them. And if you attack them and you lose that battle, they get to steal all your stuff. Clever, right? Noodle time worked out. But here's the thing. That date is on the calendar. We still got months to get there. And so all of these things have happened, all of this stuff of, of what we might perceive now with hindsight, we might perceive now that God has been working like to get to this point where we have this inscrutable, unsolvable problem that we're going to be attacked, and now we have this kind of a solution that we can defend ourselves, and maybe we'll you know, get some property out of this too. Who knows how it's going to shake out? But we've got to wait for the day because it's tied to the calendar. And I don't know if you feel like this. There's times where we get to a place in our life where we're not quite where we think we need to be, but, what we've, but we've come so far. And it's like, God, if you've brought me this far, if you've walked with me through this, if you've, if you've seen all these things happen and you've worked all these things out, like, why would you stop talking to me right now? Like, you're, you, we've set up this thing so that you can do something, but i got to wait a couple months to see whether it's going to work. I'm still a young man, and so maybe this strikes you differently than it does me, but there's a lot of life that's just waiting. 
There's a, like I thought, I thought when I grew up, like I could, I'd have all the action to be able to do. Like I'd, I'd just be able to eat all the ice cream when I, whenever I wanted to and, and, and all those kinds of things. But I didn't understand that like I had to go to work to get the money to buy the ice cream. And then by the time I'd done all that, I didn't really want all that much ice cream. I wanted to go to bed. But there's a lot of life that's just waiting. And we talked about this, if you've been, if you've followed with us, uh, for months now, we talked about this last year at Christmas. We talked about the waiting game and how it seems like there's times where God gets involved in history and he does some big stuff and then just kind of lets things work. He's like, I'm going to make this promise, but it's going to take like 400, 500, I don't know, 2,000 years to get to the place where it's going to happen. Because God, God's outside of time and doesn't, he's not as stressed about it as I am. And he, and he doesn't have any problem making a promise to somebody that isn't going to be fulfilled until their grandson. That these people are not necessarily going to get to see the promise fulfilled, but it's still a promise and it's still good and it's still valid. And if, if God has made a promise, it can be taken to the bank even more than the law of the kings of, the, of Persia. If God said it, it's going to happen. It's like writing history before it happens. But I still got to wake up on Tuesday. Right? Would you turn with me to Psalm 35? Psalm 35 on page 581, if you want to use the, uh, the blue Bibles there. Psalm 35. Psalm 35, beginning in verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise up for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. And then my soul will rejoice in Yahweh, exalting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy, from him who robs him. I'll pause there. So, at the outset, we see conflict here. This is a psalm that was written by King David, and every, if you read his life story, every time he turns around, he's got somebody else that's trying to pick a fight with him. <clears throat> and so he opens up this psalm. He says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. God, they're coming at me, and I didn't do anything to provoke them. They're just coming at me for nothing. Like, 
Lord, would you be the one who fights on my behalf because I haven't done anything wrong here. I didn't do anything that they should come against me like this. Take hold of the shield and buckler. Like, get dressed for battle. Rise up. Get your spear and your javelin. Draw um, against my pursuers. Get your weapons out. And say to my soul, I am your salvation. Can you just imagine, like, if you could actually sit and watch this? I think this would be absolutely fascinating. Some... I think we don't see it oftentimes because it would be like super duper scary and we wouldn't be able to sleep at night and we'd have nightmares. But if we could see like what is happening in the spiritual realm in the course of our life, like I think it'd be fascinating. But can you just picture in your mind like the king getting ready for war? Yahweh, Lord, creator of the universe, puts on his armor to go to battle on your behalf. And can you imagine the voice of God Who's, who, who created things, who said, let there be light, and it just was, and who said, let the, let the um, land and the sea be separated, and the sea just stopped where it needed to be, like the one who says these things and they happen, his battle cry going to battle is, I am your salvation. Like that, that, that would be encouraging, I think. Right? God, God's getting up off of his throne to go into battle, and his battle cry is, I am your salvation. I'm going to save you. You've, you've come to me, and I'm going to take care of this. Just wait a minute. And, and, and David keeps praying. He says, let them be put to shame and dishonor. Let them be like chaff that kind of blows in the wind. And, and this is fascinating. It's a throwback of the picture in, in Psalm chapter 1. Of, of when they would grind wheat, they would, they would crush it all up because it's, it's like a plant and it's dried out and they'd crush it up and then there's like the shells of it that are no good and then there's the seed of it that is good. So they'd go up on the top of a hill and chuck it with a fork and the stuff that isn't any good would blow away because there's no weight to it and all the seeds would fall down. You don't have to necessarily understand all that when I say chaff, but you do need to understand it's like blowing in the wind. It's like a damp, gone. It just blows away in a strong wind. So these, these people these, that are contending with me, would, would you make them like chaff? Would you help them to blow in the wind? Would you just, and they're gone. And I think it's so fast, if, if I can, if you allow me to just jump forward uh, in the battle of Armageddon, when all the nations of the world have risen up against Yahweh as king, they, they dress themselves for battle and they show up in the, in the, in the, um, in the valley of Megiddo, and they're like, we're going to destroy God. And God shows up and says one word, and it's over. It's the least, like the great battle of Armageddon is the least climactic thing. God shows up, says, die, and they're gone. Anyway, I think that's interesting. So chaff is kind of a great picture. But, but look in verse 7. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. So let destruction come upon him when he doesn't know it. Let the, let the, let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. So these people are coming at me. I didn't do anything wrong. So all these traps that they've set up, like would you confuse them about where they're at? And they can just fall into the things they dig. I, like This happens sometimes where people get so worked up about, about trying to uh, manipulate situations and, and try to make things work that they just end up in their own trap. Sometimes people get hung on the gallows they built for somebody else. And, and we, as God's people, can be like, God, like, like, I can try to figure out how to make sure that these people get what's coming back to them. And, and God's like, no, vengeance is mine. I will take care of it. 
My battle cry is, I am your salvation. Like, just let me handle it. And then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exalting in his salvation. All my bones, the deepest, achiest part of my life shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and the needy from him who robs him. Lord, who is like you? What God is there in the universe that would get up off of his throne to go to war for, the, for, for kids? I've studied a couple of the major religions. There isn't another one. When people say, I, I don't believe in God, my first question is, well, which one don't you believe in? But then, like, if, if they're talking about a different one, then like, hey, let me tell you about who the real one is. Who is like him that would get up off of his throne in, in, in heaven and come down to be born as an infant, a helpless infant, so that he could grow up in dirt and poverty in order to lay his own life down after being abused by the people he came to save so they could be reconciled with God? Who is like you? You certainly are not chaff. Let's continue reading in verse 11. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in the morning, but at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. So here we take a turn where things get personal. Like you're not just coming at me, but like you're, you're mocking me. And it would be one thing if you were mocking me and I was a jerk to you. Like, that kind of makes sense. But, but I, when I heard about the bad things that were going in your life, I prayed for you. I was sad for you. I met you in your sorrow, and you have now come to me in my sorrow and laughed. I don't know if, if you've experienced that kind of um, pain where somebody that you trusted with sensitive information would then turn around and use it against you as though you weren't worth the time. I can perceive that you do know it. And let me just remind you that God knows what is true, and he sees that kind of pain that he has seen the compassion that you've shown to other people and he's seen the reviling and the nasty words that they have said back about you and he understands. And you're not forgotten. It's, it, that's personal. Like, that can't just be just business. That can't just be like trying to you know, do the rat race at work. Like No, that, that was personal. 
And that hurts deeply. And I, I said this to a friend this week. I said, I don't know what it is. When stupid people say stupid things, I should be able to just acknowledge, this is a stupid person saying something stupid. Like, why would it hurt me so much? But I'm astonished at how much wounds I receive from stupid people saying stupid stuff that I know isn't true, but it still hurts. And so we cry out to God, God, like, I... I'm not the one who's in the wrong here, and I'm not like trying to make myself look good, but I care about these people, and it seems like they just, every time I care about them, they blow it back in my face, like I'm trying to hurt them, and that's not what I mean. How long, O oh Lord, will you look on? Would you rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions? And I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. You see, God shows us a patient kindness. Like, if we're moving towards people with compassion, odds are pretty good that we've got that compassion from Him. And, and, and God shows us a, a patient kindness. Because I don't know anybody... <laughs> I don't know anybody else in the world who wakes up in the morning ready to forgive me for the stupid stuff that I've done. Like, Jessie is a saint, but she doesn't wake up first thing in the morning ready to do that. Like, it takes her a while to warm up to it. And depending on how dumb I am on any given day, it might take a while. But God shows us patient kindness. He shows us compassion. He listens to us when we're away. He, he, he knows the things that we see, and he bears them with us patiently. Let's continue reading this last section. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but, are, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Yahweh. Be not silent, O Lord. Be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, Aha, our hearts desire, and let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed together who rejoice at my calamity." Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So the prayer is essentially, God, would you get the credit for what's about to happen? I've shared this idea with you sometimes. There's times where we can pray for people and God can answer their prayer and they just it goes completely over their head that God was involved. It's almost like reading the book of Esther. It's like, well, did you see what just happened there? Like, obviously God was doing that and they just don't see it. And so, God, don't let them think that they have destroyed me. 
Don't let them think that they've looked at somebody who is weak and somebody who is um, serving Jesus and that they, and they, those people just need to be squashed. Like their religion is just a crutch and, and I can walk all over them. But Lord, don't let them, don't let them get away with, don't let them think that for the rest of their lives. Like if they continue to think in that way, then, then at the end of their life, what will they have? They'll have walked over a bunch of people and ended up alone. And, re- and rejected the invitation to follow and serve the true God. So don't let them be stuck in that mindset that they've come to me with. God, would you change their thinking? There's a, a nuance here that I'm not quite sure that I'll be able to nail in your understanding. In verse 26, let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. I I, just, I want to point out that there are times where in order to change our minds, in order to change our thinking, in order to change our direction, that God uses shame to do that. And there are promises that we have from God that when we walk in his ways that we have no shame. And there are things that I read that, I, that makes me think that, that, that shame is a bad thing and that shame should always be avoided. But I see in the scripture that God sometimes uses that. There are times where I look at God's word and go, I am ashamed that I have taken you for granted or I am ashamed that I have thought that I was arrogant enough to be able to speak to you that way and and God, would you correct my heart? And so in praying that God would shame them, not so that they would just be shamed and shunned and kicked out of the community, but shame in order to change their mind and change their thinking. Because here's, here's where he's going. Look at where he's going. In verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord. It's not a put them to shame so they can see how great I am and how I got my life together and how I've got all things working together. Like, no, 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 no. Like if there are people who are rejoicing that my life is going in a good direction, let them give praise to God. Because we know that, but for the grace of God, there go I. That we can look at people like Haman and think, wow, that guy's really wicked and his life was super screwed up and like, man, blah, blah, blah. But I know my heart well enough to know that I could very easily live my whole life trying to serve and promote myself. Unless God got involved. And so if, if there is any humility in me, if there is any love for the truth and love for justice, don't praise me, praise God. It wasn't something that I sought out. It wasn't something that I wanted for myself because I was born with the same default settings that you were born with. That you were the center of the universe. That I was the center of the universe. And it's only God in his kindness, his patient kindness, that he can show us that actually he's the one who's the center of all things. So would you advance two slides for me? God shows us a patient kindness. And we ask for his help because God shows us a patient kindness. We ask for his help because he shows us a patient kindness. See, if we slide back into Esther, there's a period of waiting. They've They've come up with a solution. They've, they've got a plan, but they've got to wait for the day. 
And they still got to wake up on Thursday and do life. And there's this big anxiety of what's going to happen and what is the battle going to look like and what is God going to do? And I don't know, and I don't know, and I don't know. And so we ask God's help. We ask for his help because God shows us that patient kindness. He gives us the correction. As we read Psalm 35, just if you were to go back through it this week, and I do encourage you to do that, notice that they're wait, they're, they're, all of these things are waiting for God to finish what he started. This isn't a concluded deal. This is looking forward. God, would you please do this? Would you fight for your reputation? Would you guide me in the right way to go? Not so that I can feel great about how righteous I am, but let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, great is Yahweh, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. And this will be my response. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Would you reorient my thinking to not be about me, but about you and what you're doing in and through me? Would you pray with me? God, we need you. There's times where we are burdened and attacked and we feel overwhelmed, and yet you are with us. And so, Lord, as, as we are waiting, as we are seeking, as we're trying to understand what it is that you're doing, Lord, would you give us the confidence and understanding of who you are and what you want to do that you delight in the welfare of your servants, and that as you rise up from your throne, dressed for battle, your war cry is, I am your salvation. God, would you train our hearts not to look for salvation in other places? We thank you for this time, and we thank you for your word.